Welcome to Dental Dilemmas, brought to you by the ADA Council on Ethics, Bylaws, and Judicial Affairs. I am your host, Alex Melian. Today, using the ADA's Code of Ethics and Professional Conduct, we will touch on all five principles of the code. Beneficence, non-malfeasance, patient autonomy, veracity, and justice. I've been excited about this episode because teledentistry is such an emerging topic in dentistry, and there are so many ethical layers to evaluate. Today's question is specific in that it discusses CDT codes regarding teledentistry, but we will cover this entire topic on many levels. I'm grateful to welcome Dr. Bob Wilson to discuss his previously published article from February of 2021. I'm concerned about abuse of the current CDT coding for teledentistry. My question involves whether to file a claim for a teledentistry encounter in which a patient called the office about a toothache during the COVID-19 pandemic and a prescription was provided for the patient. Is it ethical to bill the patient, the dental benefit carrier, or both? Dr. Wilson, it's a pleasure being with you tonight. We got to know each other last year as you were the chair of CBJA, and I always appreciated how kind and welcoming you were. So I've been looking forward to doing this interview and thank you for, for taking the time. Um, one of the main focuses for the council was proposing an amendment um, to the ADA policy on teledentistry that was passed by last year's House of Delegates. Um, but before we get into that, tell us about yourself and where you practice. Certainly. And Alex, before I started, it's a great pleasure to be with you as well. I always enjoyed you so much on the council. Your, your input, your insights were always very valuable. Uh, that was a great experience, and I'm, I'm very excited about doing something related to the council again. So it, it's great to be with you. I practice in Gaithersburg, Maryland. I graduated dental school in 1985. I went to West Virginia University. I decided to leave Maryland for a few years of my life, knowing that I would be coming back to join my father in practice. He opened the practice in 1958. And 60 years later, almost to the day, my daughter joined me in 2018. So we have our group practice. I guess I'm now working for my daughter in some ways, but really I'm working with her and enjoying it as much as ever. No, wonderful. I'm a second generation dentist as well. And um, I can imagine having that third generation is wonderful. And um, there's nothing better than working with family. So that's great. And I can imagine you've really been cherishing those last number of years being in there together. It's really been fun. And why, why did you select dentistry as a career path? And obviously, like you had said, is having your dad as, I can imagine, as a role model and seeing how he enjoyed the profession. But what, what led you going down that path? Well, certainly my father was a great influence on that. And also just having the opportunity to know what it was like before I made that commitment to dental school. Because I did spend a lot of time in the office, um, even as a kid, in my younger years, the office was attached to our house, so it was it was always right there. And then um, when we moved, we didn't move far away, and I, I could literally walk to the office, which I would sometimes do. I worked. I learned how to assist. I learned how to develop X-rays, which is a thing of the past. But and Dad taught me how to do some lab work. I would I would do some of his lab work for him. So I had all that experience, but. I didn't really decide for sure I was going to do that. I, I had a lot of other things I was interested in, but I always loved the sciences. I liked the idea of being a professional. 
and everything that that involved, both the responsibility as well as the privileges. That that appealed to me very much. It it seemed like the right thing to do, and I have to say I have enjoyed my profession so much. It's been uh, better than I ever imagined. The rewards have been many faceted and abundant, and I'm 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 very very happy I made that choice. It is. I couldn't agree more. It is the best profession, and I'm so thankful for what we do every day. So the article we are going to discuss today was published in February of last year. Um, had a lot of relevance during COVID, um, but it's continued as technology has changed and um, everything is, is a little bit different now coming out of COVID. But um, the main topic is utilizing the CDT um, code for teledentistry. Um, but I'd like to discuss your views on teledentistry as a whole, um, and then we'll get a little bit more depth in the article as we keep moving forward. Teledentistry is a little unique versus telemedicine in many instances, and our medical colleagues have been using it for a longer time standpoint. Um, is there anything that you feel that we can learn from them or should be weary of? Um, yes, I would say both. Um, you know, they, they definitely have adapted that, it seems to me, more broadly than we have. But I think also practice of medicine lends itself to teledentistry much more than dentistry because we're such a procedure-based discipline and we don't, you know, we don't make a diagnosis and then a prescription um, as often as they do in medicine. So, you know, the, the limitations of what we can do through teledentistry as a percentage of what we do as a whole, I think, are greater than they are in medicine. But I see now a trend in medicine that is going towards telemedicine is basically your only option. And I think that to me is a little bit disturbing. I think it's often a great option, but I think we should always be respectful of the patient's autonomy and their right to choose whether they want that that telehealth encounter or whether or not they want an in-person visit. Yeah, and no, that's a great point. It's, it's interesting how that pendulum goes back and forth. Um, I've previously heard you describe the many different facets of teledentistry and, and the layers of it, especially when you start discussing from a state dental board standpoint where the patient's located versus the practitioner's located. And I never really had thought about this until um, we discussed it in depth quite a bit last year and you described it so well. Could you go into a little bit different uh, des- describing those layers and the discussion of it? I'd be happy to. So last year, well, let's let's go back to 2020, if we might, <clears throat> and the ADA's policy on teledentistry, it was discussed at length at the House. There was many competing resolutions. One of the councils had tried to work on it. There were There was a lot of disagreements and the reference committee came up with a substitute and did their best, but it, it still contained a major flaw. And it was a flaw that we seemed to discover late. And I kind of stumbled on it when I was prepping to do a webinar for my local component about teledentistry. And I was asked to talk about ethical concerns. So I went to that policy and I noticed that the policy had the statement that to the effect that you had to be licensed 
in the state where the patient received services. So I called ADA to their legal department and I asked them to tell me exactly what that meant. And the answer was, for example, I practice in Maryland. So I can only do teledentistry for patients that live in Maryland. The problem with this is, for example, I have a patient, I'm in the middle of treatment, they go to vacation in Florida and they have an issue and they call me up, maybe they send me a picture, maybe we FaceTime, you know, I'm, I have a root canal in progress and all of a sudden they've got a, a fistula or a perilous swelling, pain, so on, and um, we're having this encounter, which fits the definition of teledentistry and I'm going to write them a prescription. Well, that would violate the ADA's policy as it existed at that time. Of course, my ethical obligation is very clear that I don't abandon a patient, particularly in the middle of a course of treatment. Not only that, the Maryland State Dental Practice Act forbids that as well. So it was a very glaring conflict. I shouldn't say glaring because it, it wasn't noticed until teledentistry became all of a sudden a tool that was very useful during the pandemic because that policy was originally written in 2015 and it just slipped by everybody. Um, the answer I got from the ADA, by the way, is something to the fact of ADA as a policy against national licensure. And so they were kind of hung up on that, that aspect of it, of licensure and how are the state boards going to regulate this. And those issues are still not worked out on the legal end. But I think the council came up with a great solution to this problem. And the way we amended the policy was we separated it. So if you have a patient of record and you're going to need to use teledentistry to work with that patient to provide services, they're your patient of record. It doesn't matter where they are in your state, in another state, um, in another country. That's acceptable according to the policy and that is consistent with our code of ethics. And then the other patient who's not a patient of record, we left that to where if it's a new patient encounter and they're out of state, then you need to find them somebody in their state. So we, we separated those two to try to come up with a very good workable solution that both respects the, the ethics, the law, and concerns of state boards and, and licensing debates about how this is going to be regulated and um, who's going to have jurisdiction. Of course, our position is that I'm a dentist practicing in Maryland, so I'm subject to the Maryland State Board of Dental Examiners. And it, doesn't matter where my patient record happens to be at that time. And I think patients understand that and need to be willing to accept that as well. Yeah, I think like you had said, technology has definitely changed and evolved. And some of these, the previous requirements, these scenarios weren't thought of. So thank you for going over that because I think that's a main point that I had never thought of before, before we got into this discussion. And then you also talked about um, some of the ethical implications and could you talk about what um, like you said the policy was previously written in 2015 and then what were some of the ethical 
uh, considerations or why did CBJA make the amendments that they did to um, update the policy? Well, that it was really, that was the one that got us started. And then we, we started taking a very hard look at it. There's some, some other things we did. We didn't make all the changes we would like to have, but we did um, strengthen some of the language that would uh, respect the principle of autonomy and you know, reinforce the idea that the patient should have access to all the information about a dentist that they would have if they made an in-person visit. Their name, their address, their license. In Maryland, I'm required to have my license posted on the wall where patients can see it. Now, obviously, on a little screen, that's not going to be possible. So the idea is that you should make the effort to share that information with your patients. We put in another part about reinforcing the idea that patients have a right to get a second opinion. Again, respecting the principle of autonomy. They should not be expected to agree to any provision that restricts the patient's freedom to bring any concerns to the entity of their choosing, another dentist, a specialist, and so on like that. Uh, those were the main things that we we looked at when we made our revisions to the to the policy. No, thank you for giving that background. That definitely helps to kind of lay the groundwork for some of the other questions we're going to discuss here. So uh, currently there's real concern about differentiating teledentistry, virtual exams, and live in-person exams from an insurance industry standpoint. And what are they equivalent or not? Clearly they are not because they're, they're not in person, but can you expound more upon this idea of the differences between the two and how it could be viewed from an insurance standpoint? I'd be glad to. And you raise an interesting point, and that was one of the hottest items of discussion in 2020, and there was passionate testimony about that. From the insurance reimbursement standpoint, that is probably an ongoing discussion and, and debate, and that was another amendment that we made to try to fix that in the policy. It wasn't so much an ethical concern, but you know, Sibja, when we get going on something, we like to try to get it perfect. Yep. So the old policy said, as the care provided is equivalent to in-person care, insure reimbursement of services provided must be made at the same rate it would be made for services when provided in person, including reimbursement for the teledentistry codes as appropriate. The way we fix that is we struck the word as and inserted the word when. So it kind of took that debate out of the policy. I think there are definitely occasions when it's equivalent to looking at somebody in person. If you can get a good picture, you can get all the history. It's pretty much the same as putting on your gloves and getting in the mirror and using your light and doing the intraoral exam, particularly if you're looking at a limited focused exam. I, that doesn't really answer your question very well, but that's that's the best we could come up with. No, um, I think, yeah, no, that does. I think that, that talks about the nuances of it and it still leaves some, or I think, open to interpretation a little bit. But I think as yeah. technology keeps evolving, we're going to continue to visit this and that. I, absolutely. You know, as, as technology involves, the, the capabilities of teledentistry are undoubtedly going to increase. And that's another reason we made that policy that way so that it's adaptable to, to future innovations. 
right. I think we're not that far away before you can, you'll have a 3D rendering of your teeth and an oral cavity pretty soon just using your cell phone um, from. So we'll, we'll be interesting to see how that evolves. But I think that, like you had said, it left it at a very good, good point for there. In the article, you described some differences between the CDT codes 0140 versus 0170. Could you talk about what you would view as an appropriate use of 0170 teledentistry code? Certainly. So that's an exam code. And it's one of the two codes that insurers, at least in the state of Maryland, would reimburse for. And they made quick response back in 2020 uh, during the pandemic when we were shut down for elective procedures and so on like that. I, I will say they were responsive and they, they started giving some reimbursement. And then you had to add another code to indicate it was teledentistry. But I'll start with 0140, which is a limited oral exam problem focused. And, you know, that is typically somebody comes in with a toothache. Your exam is focused on diagnosing that problem and developing your treatment plan. The 0170 is probably a much less used code, and it, it's to follow up on a previously existing condition. Some examples would be a traumatic injury, undiagnosed continuing pain, or a soft tissue lesion. You know, it's a more limited code. Now, when you, pretty sure the CDT book makes a statement to the effect that if you've done, for example, a root canal or extraction and um, you need a prescription as follow-up care, pain, infection, you should not be using that code. But if you've got something that of a different nature that is an ongoing treatment or, or even an ongoing diagnosis, then it's more appropriate to use that code. No, I think, thank you. That helps a bunch. And I know you, you listed four or so good questions to think about kind of with using that appropriate code and, and billing accordingly. So um, the link to the article will be in the show notes. And I think that that's very clear and gives a good idea as to, to what the boundaries are. And then going back to just teledentistry as a whole, do you see any potential unintended consequences as the technology continues to evolve or any concerns, especially from an ethical standpoint, coming up in the future? Yes, I, I do. Um, I, I see both amazing opportunity, you know, to improve efficiency, to improve access, patient convenience. But I also, you know, with, with anything like that, there comes the potential for abuse. And there's going to be many clever ways that this technology can be used and there's probably going to be many clever ways that it can be abused unfortunately and I don't I haven't really sat down and thought a lot of ex a specific examples how it could potentially be abused but I like to always say when I'm talking about it that teledentistry is a tool it's not really a new paradigm it's just a tool that we use to deliver care and all the standards of care and all the principles of ethics and all the code of professional conduct applies to teledentistry the same as it does for in-person dentistry. So the, the distinction is not, there's not like a different set of ethics that apply to teledentistry. Um, they apply the same way and, and they, they apply equally. Um, I think probably 
most dangerous ones are easily to be abused or, or deal with patient autonomy and veracity. Are you giving the patient all the opportunity that they want to get the best care or the care in the setting where they're more comfortable? Do they need the in-person encounter or are you forcing them to only be treated through teledentistry? Are you being truthful with them about the limitations of teledentistry? Are you being truthful with them about the fees involved for teledentistry? Are you being truthful with them about their options? If teledentistry suits you better, I mean, it doesn't necessarily suit them better. So a few examples, but I'm, I'm not clever enough to think of things that I'm sure are going to come down the pike right. and we're going to go, wow, who thought of that? And look what they're doing. Yeah, I'm, no, I, I'm hoping most of those will be good things, but I'm sure right, they will no, no, I agree with you. I know that like you, I think you really hit home in that, that autonomy and veracity is what makes dentistry a profession. And if you don't have that access to an in-person exam or consult, I think that, like you said, it's a, it would, there's just one code of ethics and there's not a separate for, for dentistry. So I, that's great. Thank you. And then what does being an ethical dentist mean to you? I and mean, how do you apply the ADA code of ethics to your, day, your everyday practice? We could go on a long, long time about <laughs> this, but let me try to condense it in a nutshell. What it means to me is always putting the patient's best interest as my primary focus. The patient's best interest always drives my decisions when I recommend treatment, um, when I provide treatment, and when you know when I structure how my my practice operates, um, there's of course many other things involved in that, but I be, I honestly believe that's at the core of it. No, and I, we've said it before in previous episodes that just respecting doing what's best for the patient just is always the the best decision and whatever allows you to sleep at night. So I think that's that's a very clear answer. And thank you. In regards to practicing ethically in the ADA code. Um, what advice would you give to a recently graduated new dentist? And I can imagine you've you've had a number of discussions with your daughter already. So, but it's been a few years, like you had said. But I think this is a always a great question. And how do you view this from a, a new dentist standpoint? I would tell, and I do tell the new dentist. I talk to them at the dental school sometimes. And one thing I always like to say to them is, do not let money drive your decision making process in in any way, shape, or form. You know, don't be looking at the production dollars when you see a patient and have that influence what you recommend. By the same token, don't don't do the wallet biopsy on a patient and decide that they can't afford the best treatment. You should always offer the best to every patient as well as you should offer them options and particularly when they say finances are an issue then you've got to come up with a solution that they can be comfortable with financially but if you keep the patient's best interest as a primary driver of your decision making then you will make ethical decisions if you let money drive those decisions ethics will go out the window it's just it's just what will happen i've seen it happen many times we all have keep the book handy you know or, or I'm a little old-fashioned. I say keep the book handy or keep the link handy. Know the principles. You don't need to know the whole book. Just understand what the five principles mean and let those be your guide as you make your decisions. 
come to the best conclusion that is the best thing for your patient if you get in a specific situation you're not sure a lot of times you can find it under the code or under the advisory opinions and you can go to that quick reference you do these things you will reap many benefits number one you will stay out of trouble if, if I were ever asked to do a, a risk management lecture it would be heavy on ethics because I firmly believe if you practice ethically you will stay out of trouble with liability from patients always be truthful if you if something doesn't go right even if you make a mistake you need to tell the patient it's hard but you got to tell them if you tell them they're not gonna they're not gonna be mad but if they find out later because it's a problem they go somewhere else and they realize you were deceptive they're gonna be very angry and it's probably not gonna be good for you no I think that's that's great and wonderful advice I think that that guide is is wonderful thank you yeah. and, and let, you know let me just add if if you if you practice this way your, your rewards they are going to be many you will do well financially because you will have the respect and adoration of your patients and they will tell their friends and their family what a great person you are and if they think you're a great person they're going to think you're a great dentist and they will refer people to you you'll sleep well at night you'll be glad to see people in the community and they'll be glad to see you and and the money will come just do the right thing first I think that that's a great insight and I, I think that's a perfect way to to close a lot of the discussion that we've had is where technology is going and did you have any final thoughts about teledentistry and or about the article itself well the the you know the article itself it started out with a question about <clears throat> when it's appropriate to use to charge a patient for teledentistry and it, it, it was a real question that that came to the ADA and it came to me and I was asked to write something about it so but the question basically was you know patient comes in they have an extraction or root canal they call back the next day they're in pain you're going to prescribe possibly an antibiotic and maybe pain medication is it ethical to charge them for a teledentistry visit and it, the article goes into the analysis of, an analysis of that you know the bottom line is think about it this way before teledentistry if they called your office would you have billed them for that are you billing everybody for that are you telling them that they're going to be billed you know okay before the doctor comes to the phone to talk to you you know there's going to be a fee for this are you going to bill their insurance so you know don't get greedy with it and um, use it it's, it's a very very exciting and it is a new frontier and the pandemic showed us how useful it can be but I think we've I think we've just I, I don't think we've even scratched the surface of the possibilities yet as you mentioned there's going to be technologies that probably right in our pockets with our cell phones that we can't even imagine yet so keep an open mind keep up on it you know keep yourself your knowledge current and um and never forget about those five principles dr wilson this has been incredibly insightful and enlightening and i again appreciate you taking the time and i've really enjoyed this conversation so it's been great to reconnect and thank you so much for for taking the time again to do this 
Alex, it's been my pleasure. It has been great to reconnect and, and visit with you again on one of my favorite topics. And uh, I want to commend you for all the great work you're doing and uh, commend the council for all the great work they continue to do. These podcasts are great. I've really enjoyed listening to them. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much and um, hope to see you soon. Looking forward to it. You take care. A final note about the episode. Please see the show notes for a link to the original article and stay tuned for future episodes. At the close of the episode, continue listening to hear the sections of the ADA's Principles of Ethics and Code of Professional Conduct pertinent to the original Ethical Moment article. Thank you for keeping ethics at the forefront of the dental profession and join Sibja as we continue to solve dental dilemmas. This article discusses all five sections of the ADA's Principles of Ethics and Code of Professional Conduct. These sections are as follows. Patient autonomy or self-governance. The dentist has a duty to respect the patient's rights to self-determination and confidentiality. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to treat the patient according to the patient's desires, within the bounds of accepted treatment, and to protect the patient's confidentiality. Under this principle, the dentist's primary allegations include involving patients in treatment decisions in a meaningful way, with due consideration being given to the patient's needs, desires, and abilities, and safeguarding the patient's privacy. Non-malfeasance, or do no harm. The dentist has a duty to refrain from harming the patient. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to protect the patient from harm. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations include keeping knowledge and skills current, knowing one's own limitations and when to refer to a specialist or other professional, and knowing when and under what circumstances delegation of patient care to auxiliaries is appropriate. Beneficence, or do good. The dentist has a duty to promote the patient's welfare. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to act for the benefit of others. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligation is service to the patient and the public at large. The most important aspect of this obligation is the competent and timely delivery of dental care within the bounds of clinical circumstances presented by the patient, with due consideration being given to the needs, desires, and values of the patient. The same ethical considerations apply whether the dentist engages in fee-for-service, managed care, or some other practice arrangement. Dentists may choose to enter into contracts governing the provision of care to a group of patients. However, contract obligations do not excuse dentists from their ethical duty to put the patient's welfare first. Justice or fairness. The dentist has a duty to treat people fairly. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to be fair in their dealings with patients, colleagues, and society. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations, including dealing with people justly and delivering dental care without prejudice. In its broadest sense, this principle expresses the concept that the dental profession should actively seek allies throughout society on specific activities that will help improve access to care for all. And finally, veracity or truthfulness. The dentist has a duty to communicate truthfully. This principle expresses the concept that professionals have a duty to be honest and trustworthy in their dealings with people. Under this principle, the dentist's primary obligations, including respecting the position of trust inherent in the dentist-patient relationship, communicating truthfully and without deception, and maintaining intellectual integrity. Remember to keep ethics at the forefront of your daily practice. And stay tuned to Sibja Decode's Dental Dilemmas.